Welcome back, everyone, to episode two of Akita EHS's uh, news discussion podcast. It is uh, Sunday, December 6th, and we uh, have grown our team a little bit, which we'll tell you about in a second, but I'm sure you can see that there's one more person on our screens. Anyways, uh, today we're going to talk about um, a few different articles. Uh, we have an article about uh, a super fun site that is off the coast of California near Catalina Island that's contaminated with DDT. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And we have another article about uh, a new Cal OSHA regulations for COVID that have gone into effect. And we're going to finish off with an article about a new style of respirator without an exhalation valve that was just approved by NIOSH, among a few other things. But that's the, uh, the format that we're going to try to follow. And um, so before we get into all that, though, let's introduce Kendra. Kendra Datisman just joined the team a couple weeks ago. We're happy to have her. Uh, she's bringing a lot of great energy and showing uh, Damien and I, who uh, I, I like to call us old timers, but maybe we're not that, that old. But old enough to not understand technology the way that Kendra does. So she's been helping us a lot on the, the tech front. Um, but Kendra, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Barton and Damien. Thanks for inviting me onto the team. Uh, I My background started at the University of Arizona. I studied public health there and got my bachelor's of science degree. After that, I started working at a pharmaceutical manufacturing company out in California. And I started as a technical writer, writing manufacturing documents at Gilead. And I had an interest in environmental health and safety. So on my first day of new hire orientation, I talked to the safety manager, told him I was interested in safety and if they had any openings to let me know. And six months later, I got hired onto their team. So I learned a lot about safety from them. I worked mostly on job hazard analyses for uh, every department there. And then I decided to try out the consulting field. So I went over to BSI, learned a lot there, where I met Barton, uh, he was one of my clients, did some projects with him, um, other pharmaceutical companies, med device companies. And that was, uh, it was really fun, a lot of traveling, but uh, good experience. I then moved into technical writing again. So I'm just working for a health insurance company right now, writing their process documents. But in the meantime, I've received my ASP in the meantime. Um, so here I am, out here. No, well, I was just gonna ask, but you started the ASP while you were at BSI, right? I did. Yeah. I was studying there. I, so I studied there and I didn't do so well the first time. Uh, and, uh, I had an opportunity to take it again. I bought the package bundle. I was talking to a lot of professionals and I'm like, Oh yeah, I didn't pass the first time either. And I was like, what, why did you, why are you telling me this? But I got it. So it's all good now. I had a lot more time to study and think. So it was nice. Yeah, I got my CSP like 10 years ago. And um, 
I didn't fail any of the tests, thankfully, but I remember pushing them off a lot of times. So you pay like, I think you pay a fee when you push it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, at the, I remember the time I was trying to study for it. I was, I had been shipped down by Trambert to do a bunch of biohaz waste trainings at, um, at a big hospital in New Jersey, Hackensack. And um, I remember not being, not having the time, like, I was there at that training or doing those trainings. It was like 24 seven, um, but you know, it all worked out. TSP is a good one to have. So hopefully. You did you not have to take the ASP initially? No, I did. I tried to do everything as fast as possible. So I, uh, I kind of crammed it in, which is probably why I had to extend the date. I got my CHMM, uh, I think in 2006. While I was at Trans. What's the CHMM? The Certified Hazardous Materials Manager. Okay. Working at Triumvirate because they're a hazmat, has waste company. A lot of people get the CHMM there. Like, what, do you have that one, Damien? Yeah, I got the CHMM as well. Yeah, it was probably 10 years ago, I want to say. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely helpful. I, I, I wasn't really sure, like at that point in time, you know, like how, how it was going to be helpful or what documents and training I needed to have together before I took um, like the certification tests. Uh, I mean, that's, that's always been, you know, kind of a challenge, like, okay, so, you know, how much experience do I need to have? Like what kind of background, you know, do you need for the, the test? Um, but, you know, it's, it's pretty holistic. Like there's a lot of information in it and, you know, some of it, some of it is like industry specific, but it gives you a, a pretty broad view of, uh, you know, the like waste handling and um, everything along those lines. What's the other one you have? Uh, the other one's uh, HEM, so healthcare environmental manager, and that's more, you know, specific to like the healthcare industry. Obviously, you know, it's like doing risk assessments and, um, you know, like chemical hazards in, you know, a hospital setting. When did you get that one? That was probably like. 12 years ago. So I got my HEM prior to getting my CHMM. And that was through uh, the ECRI Institute, ECRI, which I think is in, uh, like they're based out of like Eastern Pennsylvania, um, but they hold like the certification classes like in the Northeast. They've changed quite a bit over the years. I think they're more they're not like as widely known as like the CHMM or the CSP or uh, anything like that. Whenever, uh, whenever I was at Triumvirate, there was, um, you know, how like companies will take pictures and do like articles or things on their own website, like white papers. And so I, I remember there was a picture of me that Triumvirate had taken when we were lab packing at MGH. Um, and I had my uniform on gloves and I was like looking at a chemical. And like that was apparently on the Triumvirate website, and somehow that photo made it to CNN. Like this, like this is like over ten years ago. So CNN had like a top twenty upcoming jobs, and like environment, like health and safety specialist was 
was one like somewhere in the top 20 and it had like a picture of me on the, the CNN. <laughs> that's so funny. But then I found that same picture on a brochure for, I think it was, it was a credential. I think it was the REHS or it's some weird one I hadn't heard of before. I can't remember what it was. You're famous. Like five years after that, it was weird. Yeah. I look ridiculous. I look ridiculous. We could try to pull up that photo. <laughs> I have it. It's on my own. Yeah, we should insert it. <laughs> I have it somewhere. I Anyways. Um, why are you, so Kendra, you went from EHS to technical writing and now back to EHS, like, why? I just, I had to take a break from it. It was mostly the consulting life that got to me and I was doing a ridiculous amount of driving. I was like, you know what? I just need to settle down, work at one place. Um, and I just need, I needed to do something a little slower pace, boring, I guess, just to like, calm down a little bit. But um, I always, I've always had it in the back of my mind. I got a reminder about a month before my second test date was about to expire. And I was like, maybe I should take that again. I don't know. I paid for it. So I did. And then I was looking for EHS jobs out here in Utah. Uh, I didn't have any luck. I had some interviews and the companies were really cool, but wasn't what I was looking for. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. And then you reached out to me and I, another company reached out to me, a consulting firm. So I'm going to go back into that come the new year. Uh, so I'm really excited uh, to learn more about EHS and get back into it. I mean, that's, that's what I'm good at. And that's what I like learning about. I'm kind of, my brain's kind of, kind of dead right now, just like writing meaningless documents to me personally. So I'm excited about it. So thank you guys. Yeah, the, the good thing about EHNS, it's it's never dull. You always have some, you know, bonehead that does something <laughs> silly. Yeah. Yeah, there's no shortage of people that need help learning safety stuff. Yeah. Or that need people who need help getting safety work done, like me when I was at Teva. Um, so anyways, we're very happy that Kendra's on the team. Um, thank you for telling us a little bit about yourself and asking us a little bit about ourselves. And uh, so I think now we're gonna go over a few tips. Damien's gonna talk through, us, talk through a few COVID tips for us. Yeah, so just like we did, you know, last episode, Bart went through some of the, the OSHA uh, tips that OSHA puts out. Uh, so we're just gonna go through some of those from last week. So uh, first one we got is tip 242, uh, which they're saying to sanitize key fobs and steering wheels before and after servicing vehicles. Then we have tip 241, temporarily move workstations to increase distance between workers. Tip 240. Social distance, then? That means social, social distance. Uh, tip 240, request all passengers ride in the back seat of a shared vehicle. Um, so I guess they're talking about Uber and Lyft. And <laughs> that's like saying, vehicles. that's like saying if, when you go get in the closet with somebody else, <laughs> to stand on the other side of the closet so you guys don't share the same air. Right. No, no lap sitting. 
<laughs> definitely frown against. Sit right behind the driver so you breathe all over his head. Uh, the next one is tip 239, sanitize phones and other devices regularly. Yeah, I've seen a lot of these uh, things on Amazon where you can like desanitize your phone, desanitize your toothbrush. They're like these little, I can't think of the word. The only word I can think of is autoclave, but it's not that. It's just like a mini sanitization thing. <laughs> I, I, I've seen ones online that look like, uh, like mini like tanning beds. It's like- Yeah, 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 for your device. Phone. So your you, it's phone a UV, it's the UV, it's a UV. I don't know if they're all like that. Like I, I just saw one online. It looked like, you know, a UV bed for your phone, like a little clamshell thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, tip 238, so take steps to prevent uh, common COVID-19 violations. So there was a list of COVID-19 violations. Um, you know, we will go through some of those. Uh, tip 237, wash your hands for at least 20 seconds. Unfortunately, they did not give any suggestions on songs to sing that are the 20 seconds. You know, I, there were some like kid songs. Uh, um, they did not- Is that one staying alive? Is this staying alive, one of them? <laughs> that's for CPR. Oh no, that's, that's for CPR, you're right, you're right. <laughs> you're right. If you sing the whole staying alive song, it'll be longer than 20 seconds. You're right. <laughs> So yeah, the uh, it was uh, a great set of tips from OSHA uh, on the COVID nineteen tips of the day. It it's it's focused on making sure you disinfect stuff you're going to touch, so that when you touch stuff that you might otherwise touch your mouth and get it in your mouth and somehow inhale it, because you're going to get COVID by inhaling it, not by ingesting it, not by getting it to go through your skin. Like it's something that needs to go into your lungs for it to do something to you. So um, I'd be interested to see when all this is over with, what the likelihood of infection is by, by surface contamination. Because I think if you're good about washing your hands, you're probably gonna be safe from surface contamination. Yeah, washing your hands, like, you know, if you, you know, it, it depends on, you know, kind of like the hygiene practices they have in place at your workplace, like, you know, I've seen people's hygiene practices, right? Like you're wearing gloves, like you got to wear gloves. Like, you know, if you're um, operating equipment or anything like that, I mean, some of that I'm sure helps. I don't know, maybe this is too much information, but when you go to the bathroom, like you're in the bathroom, you can hear when somebody leaves and whether or not they stop to wash their hands. And how many times oh, yeah. have I gone to the bathroom and heard people not wash their hands? Like, yeah, I've heard that too. It's pretty gross. A lot. Well, so, you know, I think there are ways they can go to the bathroom without using your hand. <laughs> there, I, there has to be at least a couple, right? That'll so, be episode three. And then, yeah. you know, arms raised and your arms <laughs> never come down the whole time you're in the bathroom. <laughs> Then if you can do that. I didn't see him because I guess I wasn't there. To see. I was somewhere else in the bathroom. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, so those are the tips. Um, you know, uh, Bart's going to go through 
uh, and then discuss. So there's a, an article uh, which you brought up at the beginning about uh, DDT contamination in California. So he's going to go through and give us some information on that. Oh, yes. This article is pretty good. Um, so the article is titled uh, LA's Coast Was Once a DDT Dumping Ground. It's, uh, it was by, it's from the Los Angeles Times. And so, you know, there's a lot of super fun, uh, super fun stories. I mean, the whole EPA was set up because we started discovering that there was massive contamination from a lack of enforcement and lack of regulations. And so uh, this is just another one of the sad stories, but um, off the coast of California, there used to be uh, a lot of DDT that was dumped legally. Uh, and so for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, DDT, <sighs> sorry. Uh, I'm looking for the name of it. I don't have, I thought I had it right. Yeah, it's uh, dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. I'm not going to be able to remember that. That's, yeah, that's, pronounce that's it, problem. don't use it. <laughs> DDT for short. Yeah, sorry. So um, say it again. Uh, dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. So yeah, so DDT is another one of these polychlorinated uh, compounds that is super persistent in the environment. It doesn't, it takes forever to break down. Um, it contaminates the, the fatty tissues of, of living animals. So it's, it sticks around in the environment and it bioaccumulates. So uh, the, the animals higher up on the food chain tend to feel the effects much more than the animals at lower on the food chain. So anyways, uh, DDT was discovered in the 40s. And I, I think it was in the 40s. And um, in the form of what, pes pesticide? Yeah, it was, it was, it, it, well, it was discovered and used as a pesticide. And it was very effective. So it was used to, to kill mosquitoes and other pests. Um, and it was widely, widely used. And so it was a big, um, it was, it was used in World War II and it was credited with saving, you know, tons of lives while soldiers combating various illnesses in the, in the field. Um, and then of course, after World War II was over, it was, uh, considered like one of the, the best chemicals ever discovered by man. The, um, the man who discovered it a Swiss chemist named Paul Hermann Mueller won the Nobel Prize for it in 1948. Um, and even at, even him at the time uh, cautioned everybody that they didn't fully understand the effects of this chemical and what it might do in the living world. So, you know, it, he, everybody acknowledged that it definitely did a good job killing pests, but they, you know, didn't have any evidence of or research going into how it might affect the environment and human health. Um, and so just a quick description of how this goes into the food chain. So this stuff gets dumped into the ocean, which we're going to talk a little bit about. Phytoplankton are the base, uh, the base of, the, of most food chains in the oceans um, are then eaten by zooplankton. Zooplankton are then eaten by fish and whales. And then from there, you got 
birds and other other predators that eat fish and whales, uh, eventually leading into humans. And so you can see that there was a big there's a big problem, and and they had um, there's there's evidence of of animals coming back contaminated. Um, I think there's a uh, a piece in 1969 where shipments of jack mackerel from Southern California were recalled because DDT levels were uh, were too high, double what the FDA at the time considered to be safe. Uh, they started seeing tumors and bottom bottom feeding fish like white croaker, uh, California brown pelicans, which eat fish. Um, they were laying eggs on Anacapa Island, where with chemicals that were broken down from TDT, averaging uh, 1,200 parts per million, which is a is a significant uh, amount. Um, the, the eggshells from birds were too thin, chicks would die, bald eagles vanished from the Channel Islands, along with peregrine falcons and brown pelicans. Um, sea lions were giving birth to pups prematurely. Uh, lots of animals had really high levels of DDT in their systems. Um, and so they started building all this evidence. Uh, there were people researching the negative effects of DDT, and then the U.S. finally banned it in 1972. However, that not all countries banned it, so it was still widely used around the world. So these companies continued to manufacture it, even though it was banned in the U.S. Um, so that's just a brief history of like from the start to finish. Now. Uh, during this this article, the, the main part of this article is that they found a dumping ground for DDT drums. And so um, from uh, the, the, I think it was the 1880s until, um, I think, the 1880s. Yeah, so that was that, that company in California. Montrose. Right? Yeah, Mont Montrose. Yeah, that was 1947 to 1982. Right. But there, so the reason why they were dumping stuff is because it was legal and acceptable at the time. Because they were the people didn't want to landfill it because they were worried about contaminating so the ground. People didn't want to burn it because they were worried about air pollution. So they were like, "Well, the, ocean, the Pacific Ocean's huge. Go dump it in the ocean, out of sight, out of mind." And it was legal because there were um, the only regulations they had were. Um, were laws that dated back to 1886 that were really focused on clearing the way for ship navigation. So there was no real protections for, for dumping until 1972 um, when the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act, also known as the Ocean Dumping Act, was uh, enacted. And so unfortunately, it was legal. And so what, what they found was this partic one particular company, Montrose, based out of LA, was dumping, uh, I think they said up to about 2,000 uh, drums per month, 55 yeah. gallon drums per month. Yeah, so yeah. they're only doing that for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so wild that like, oh, if the drums were still floating, they would just puncture them and it made it all better because they would sink, you know, while they're leaking all these toxic fluids. Yeah, no, it's it's wild. So, and, and there's evidence. I mean, there's shipping logs that show these shipments going out. Um, and so, 
They think that between 47 and 61, as much as 767 tons of DDT may have been dumped into the ocean. There were, this company got in trouble for a few different things. Um, and so, you know, the, once DDT was banned, uh, this, this company got into trouble for dumping DDT waste down the drain, which they um, litigated and, and had to pay a settlement on. And then, um, but, and, and then like the focus of all the contamination problems in Southern California was that they thought that all the DDT was from dumping of sewage. So they always looked near the coast. But as time went on, people uh, started to um, learn that there was more than just the sewage problem. There were drums that were in shallow waters near the coast, of, off the coast of California. And then that got litigated as, as they found more evidence of it. Um, but then they still started, no, they still, like even after they had figured it out and kind of, I don't know that they really isolated it. It's in about 300 feet of water, the stuff that's close to this, the, the coast. Um, some researchers were still looking into it and noticed that there is a difference between the DDT contamination that they were finding from the sites that they knew about and what they seemed to still get from deep ocean currents. Like they were still uh, detecting different types of DDT because apparently the stuff that was done close to the shore was DDT and PCBs and the stuff that they were getting evidence of didn't have PCBs in it. So they're like, there must be another dumping ground somewhere. So um, after a lot of research, I mean, basically what they needed to do was go down there and see it. And, and where they were talking about looking was in 3000 feet of water. And, you know, I, I don't think that the technology to go that deep is, that's, that's new technology, I, I think. I think maybe within the last 10 years, um, at least that's when they went down and found them, apparently using the team that found the Titanic. Um, so it's uh, just kind of wild. Thousands of drums just dumped into the ocean. And now we have these pictures of these drums that have been down there for like 50 years or de for decades. So there's evidence of it being there. But now how do you organize a cleanup of thousands of drums in 3,000 feet of water, 10 miles off the coast of California? It's... Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem like, a, like an easy task. Yeah, I saw that they, they did like, they tried to cap it, like a cement cap. And that didn't really like work. I mean, doing anything 3,000 feet under water, I think is pretty challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just sad how, you know, and they link these like, and for as far as he human health goes, there, it there's no direct tie of DDT contamination with, um, with human health problems, but there's a lot of suspect uh, uh, connection. So they suspect that DDT contamination. Um, uh, is linked to breast cancer in women. So if your mother was, if your mother had DD, like was exposed to DDT when you were, um, when, when she was uh, carrying like her child and the babies tended to have breast cancer. So there's a maternal link 
um, along with, uh, I think. Uh, yeah, because it's got like an affinity for like fats, right? Mm -hmm. So like breastfeeding mothers, right? Like, you know, a high fat content in the milk, you know, you're essentially, you know, feeding that to your children, you know, DDT laced milk. So, you know, any bioaccumulants like that, like DDT or, you know, PCBs like they had in like the Puget Sound, like stuff, um, you know, chemicals like that are like a, a big concern, particularly for, you know, like women. Kendra's like, God, oh, I shouldn't have gone swimming out there. I know, right? No, I didn't go swimming that day. <laughs> I've only been out there once, but just like swimming on the coast of like a few California waters is just sketch to me. Like they kind of look gross. If you, it's also if you freezing. Google swim Catalina, California. Everybody on the beach looks happy. <laughs> right? You don't see any drums anywhere. You know, there are people with margaritas and very skimpy bikinis. Um, I got my margaritas, but we're missing the bald eagles. Yeah, we are missing the bald. Bald eagles don't get margaritas. Yeah, there are definitely some bald old men with speedos <laughs> on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's no joke, right? Like that, you know, granted, they, they didn't think it was wrong, right? But, you know. They thought it would just dilute in the ocean because it's so vast. Dilution is the solution to pollution. <laughs> People still do this stuff, right? Like, so the, not to get too far off topic, but the Fukushima nuclear disaster, right? It happened because of a tsunami. And now that, uh, you know, there's, there was a meltdown that they are now cooling with uh, single pass-through water that they're collecting in tanks. It's, they've been doing, passing through and contaminating water for like 10 years and they don't have a, a solution ready and they're going to run out of storage space so they're like we should just dump it in the ocean no. yeah I, I saw that like if you look at like old like aerial photos too like the number like over the years after that incident like you can see kind of like the the tanks like popping up on the you know, on the on the image, like, you know, around the coast that they're using to house all this water. Crazy. Yeah, the oceans have problems. Microplastics, chemical dumping, I mean. All right, so. Uphill climb. So yeah, so that, sorry, uh, just to recap or just to finish it off, the, so this is the LA Times article uh, we'll make sure it's posted up on the website. It's a it's a pretty beefy article, so we just you know kind of went through it very quickly. Uh, but but feel free to read through it. It's got some pretty good pictures of of how they used to spray DDT all over people. Like at the beach, there's like fogging machines where they're basically just spraying crowds of people with DDT. Yeah. So the next one we got is uh, a Cal OSHA article uh so cal osha you know voted to implement stricter covid19 workplace uh protections for california uh workers and uh this article was posted by the national law review on november 30th so what uh cal osha was looking to do was to you know have like a, a 
a more strict standard for protecting employees, you know, with everything that's going on with COVID. And, you know, the, the state's rulemaking body, you know, voted unanimously, you know, six to zero to prevent, to pass the COVID-19 prevention regulations, which is like, you know, the, the standard for which, you know, uh, <clears throat> the, which is the standard for which companies, you know, need to adhere to, to protect, you know, worker safety uh, in California. You know, and some of the items that they had to adhere to is, you know, they need to write and implement a COVID-19 prevention program. So at a minimum, they had to make sure that, you know, there was a means in which to communicate to the, their employees, like, you know, what their policies are, what their procedures are, you know, surrounding exposures and potential exposures in the workplace. Uh, they needed to, you know, go through and identify COVID-19 hazards, you know, with input from the employees, you know, they had to look at, okay, you know, am I working too close next to the person next to me? Uh, you know, they have to have like a, a, a screening process in place to prevent um, COVID transmission in the workplace, you know, and they have to have like policies and procedures in place to prevent like transmission. And they have to do periodic inspections. They have to, you know, engage in contract, contact tracing. If there's any positive cases that, uh, you know, employees were involved in the, in the workplace and it was a workplace exposure. Then they had to, notify and provide testing to any potentially exposed people in the workplace, right? So it's not just, okay, so, you know, somebody came in with COVID, but they have to go through and make sure that anybody uh, through contact tracing, you know, gets tested as well. They had to follow uh, contact tracing for any positive cases, offer COVID testing at no cost to any potential potentially exposed employees. And I thought that was like a big one because, you know, I know there's a lot of testing that's, that's going on. Who's like really paying for it, I think is kind of up in the air, but they're, you know, with the, ex with the frequency and the number of like testing that, you know, is having to be completed because of this mandate, you know, who's picking up the bill on that? I think that's a, a good question to ask. Um, you know, all the while, you can't put out there that, you know, any particular employee has, you know, contracted COVID because of HIPAA laws. So they, the employer, you know, has to maintain um, confidentiality with, you know, any potential exposure or positive, um, positive case of COVID in the workplace. And they have to put things in place uh, like, you know, requiring physical distancing, you know, mandating mask wearing, you know, they have to improve ventilation, you know, and where possible they have to maximize like actual outdoor air coming in. So fresh air. So did like the whole HIPAA thing that you were saying, does that mean like if I'm at work and I contract COVID and through contact tracing, they link me getting it from someone else at work? Does that mean they won't tell me who that person is? So they, they, so HIPAA means you have to, you can't like talk about like other people's, you know, right. ailments their personal or medical information or anything like that. So 
when you're going through contact tracing, you just see if there was like, you know, an interaction, but you can't like specifically say, oh, so-and-so's got COVID. Right. So you just say, look, you have potential exposure. You need to. Yeah. We're, hey, you know, you, I, you, you work on the same team as Barton, right? Like, you know, tell me about like, when, you know, people are smart enough to kind of like connect the dots, but like as an employer, you can't specifically say Barton's got COVID when, you know, were you with him more than 15 minutes, you know, throughout the day today? So like this article, when, when this article came out on Monday, November 30th, like a week ago? Yeah. Like COVID started in February. Well, and this is California. Hopefully it'll be over with the next summer. So this, yeah. sad how, how long it takes to come up with some common sense guidance. Yeah, I mean, like the, the, the mask wearing, like the ventilation, you know, is all seems like common sense. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, maintain six feet distance. Well, that's, that's great and that works outdoors. But one of the things that this mandate says is, you know, that the, the, the virus, like when you're indoors, travels more than six feet, right? So you can't just wear a mask. You know, there needs to be some other like mechanism in place to prevent like transmission of the disease, like in the workplace, particularly so if you work indoors. And, you know, the one, some of the ways that they say that you can combat that is like whether you have, um, you know, ventilation, like you put up like a partition. So whether it's like a plexiglass, like shield, or maybe, you know, it's like a shared workplace, but you know, some people don't have to be in the office like every day, like maybe you sign out like an area and you got to switch with employees back and forth. So, you know, modified like schedules for people. Um, you know, they did talk about uh, a little bit if you have like a health condition or something that prevents you from like wearing a mask, like you have to try and like accommodate that with engineering controls. Um, cleaning and disinfecting procedures. Like you might get your bathrooms cleaned once a month pre-COVID, but now you gotta get like a cleaning service to come in twice a day to, you know, to clean areas that are common areas. Uh, I mean, you also have- uh, It's the, weird, so, sorry to interrupt. The whole, that's uh, like, now that we're asking all these people to wear masks, of course, like, when you were required to wear a mask before, a, a rated mask, you had to be medically cleared. And some people don't, aren't physically capable of wearing a mask for, for any amount of time because it puts too much, too much stress on their system. Now you're asking all these people to wear masks. So like Marissa, my wife is pregnant and she tries to wear a mask all day long, but it's like difficult for her. She's pretty huge right now. Um, yeah, I mean, was, they, so, like when they're when they're talking about like masks, like they they kind of separate that out like with like face coverings, right? So you know like a surgical mask or like a cloth mask is more like a face covering because it, it doesn't fit the definition of like you know personal PPE, personal protect protective equipment. And if you're done in PPE, then you know if it's like your your employer's handing out N95s, then you have to have like a respiratory protection program right and people need to have like the health surveillance and fit testing and stuff like that I, I would say most places aren't doing that they're just saying you know here's a surgical mask or wear a cloth mask 
you know, just wear it the right way. Make sure it fits, make sure like, you know, it's covering your nose and your mouth. Um, but, you know, I, I, most places aren't, you know, unless you're working in like a healthcare institution aren't like giving out like N95s. So you have to do like multiple things. It's like you wear this cloth, cloth face mask. You got to maintain social distancing as well. You know, you got to modify your schedule so you don't have two people working in the same like cubicle area. So there's a number of things that they're saying you have to do to try and prevent transmission. What kind of mask do you guys wear? Like uh, so we give out like surgical masks and we, uh, cloth masks. And we also do fit testing and offer N95s for people who want to wear them. So we do have like respiratory uh, protection plan in place and we mandate that everybody wears masks and we mandate, you know, the, there's no um, group meetings. Everything's done like video conferencing or on a phone call. What do you, what do you wear when you just like go out, like just in just regular everyday life? Just the cloth. I normally just do a cloth mask. Yeah. yeah. Uh, occasionally I'll get like a pack of surgical masks just if I, just in case I forget mine. We bought KN95s, which are supposed to be like N95s. There's the Chinese version. Mm -hmm. So they offer no protection. <laughs> it's. You know, I know how an N95 is supposed to fit. Like it's supposed to be, you're supposed to be able to adjust it to your face and have a tight fit. And these K95s, they just loop behind your ears. There's no way to tighten them, at least the ones that we got. And there's definitely not a tight seal around my face. Well, you can definitely tell it's a tight seal on my face because you can see the fat on the side. <laughs> um, I have one of my old half mask respirators, but I've never like walked out. Yeah, in in it. If the day comes, I have it, and I'll just get some cartridges. <laughs> go out with go out with that. The only so, the, and the problem with these types of masks, like the real masks, mm -hmm. is that they scare people. Well, it, right. It makes it look like you're going into war, but also they have <laughs> exhalation valves. So if you're sick, you're just breathing your air out, and it's the point. Exactly. The point of everyone wearing a mask is defeated. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, so a couple more things, then we'll, we'll go on to the next article. So, you know, the one that, like, I found interesting is that um, the employers have to report all outbreaks, and they define outbreaks as three or more cases in a two-week period, and they have to report it to the public health department and provide continuous testing to all on-site employees um, for more than 20 cases in 30 days. Uh, and the, the employers have to provide twice a week testing. Like that's extensive testing. Um, I'm, I'm almost certain most companies aren't doing any sort of reporting other than just like keeping records of when people do get sick. Uh, so I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, they might like, they probably weren't required to, right? I mean, yeah, I mean. Now you have a regulation that says you have to. You know, California is usually on the forefront for like any sort of like um, pro progressive like regulations pertaining to like, you know, the environment and health and safety. Um, you know, so I would say if this is new for California that, 
you know, most states will kind of follow suit at some point down the road. Um, yeah, and there was a few other items, but it's, you know, like providing housing and, uh, you know, if employers provide transportation, but, you know, for the most part, those are like the big ticket items. A lot of this stuff, like this re return to work criteria, a lot of it sounds like how you would deal with someone who got sick because they're at work, like a, a typical workers comp type case. I know it's not going to be like a workers comp case. I'm just saying, um, making sure you're accommodating them, making sure that they have like necessary gear and the capability of protecting themselves, making sure that there's return to work criteria. Uh, you don't allow them to be at work if you know that they're COVID positive. Yeah, because then they could get hit for that, that general duty clause. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know, like, there's places, like this company that I was working with, one of the pieces of technology they were working on was, you know, a, a camera that could tell your temperature and see that you're see and verify if you were wearing a face covering. You know, I know that there's a lot of technologies that like hospitals will use to verify your temperature as you walk through the door. Um, a lot of places have the, temp the, the thermometers they run across your forehead, but also there's just actual thermal cameras. They're about maybe like 10 to $15,000, but they hook them up to TVs and they just watch people walk through doors and they pick them off when it's too hot. <laughs> Sounds like, they, yeah, all the alarms go they off. They hit a button and, and they <laughs> close. <laughs> yeah, the gates close. <laughs> Amazing. <clears throat> I would be interested yeah. if anybody's listening to uh, this this podcast, if they know of other states with other other rules. You know, we're not familiar with all the different states, so it would be uh, something we'd love to to get feedback on. Speaking of uh, masks, the, the article uh, that I was reading on the first elastomeric respirator without an escalation valve, uh, it was approved by NIOSH, and they're ready for pre-order this month. Uh, so basically, it's just a half mask respirator. They call it the Safety Advantage P90. It basically looks like the one that I have that I don't wear out, but uh, it has a place for the cartridges. Uh, and basically, okay, so I did some research on exhalation valves and back in the 90s, there was an OSHA memo where they were concerned with exhalation valves because of TV at the time. They were saying, hey, um, these respirators are effective up until, you know, the leakage of air contaminants from like people that are potentially sick um, that will get back out into the environment. So they thought it was safer to wear valveless uh, respirators or fabric type disposable respirator. So like surgical mask or uh, cloth type. Um, but they found that there was nothing wrong with the exhalation valves. So they, I think it was updated in 1999 and they did like, they posted like five published studies 
where they examine the exhalation valve leakage, they measured the leakage rates, and they worked with new and used valves. And they're basically saying, if it's properly maintained, um, then the elastomeric base piece respirator is fine with the exhalation valve. Uh, but that was in the 90s. They did some studies recently. Uh, there was one, what was it, um, NCIV. It was on PubMed. Uh, they did a study, and the CDC was basically saying that all healthcare personnel should not wear masks with exhalation valves because they come in contact with so many people who are already, you know, immune compromised, um, and those exhalation valves also can still spread, you know, the virus or any sickness that they might have, even if they're asymptomatic. Um, so I think a lot of people are wearing them because they're more comfortable and they can breathe better, but it's not doing anyone else that is surrounding them any good. So I was trying to figure it out by reading the article, but I couldn't, if, it, if there's an exhalation valve, where does the air go? Did, did we figure that out? It was like oh, a was... membrane. So it's like another, it's like a, exhalation filter membrane. So like you get the air going in through the cartridges and then there's another membrane that you exhale through. And to be honest with you, it didn't even like cross my mind that that was like an issue. I was like, oh shit, I got a full face APR. Like I'm just gonna wear that and not have to worry about shit, right? And then, you know, I was reading the article, I was like, oh yeah, the exhalation, that doesn't do anything for anybody because I'm just spewing out, right. you know, virus particles out of this full face APR. And I was like, okay, so MSA is on to something. So. They are on to something <laughs> here. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it didn't, like I didn't connect the dots until I, I read that article. It's like why that's not like, an effective means to prevent, you know, transmission of the virus, because it seems like it's much more protective than anything else, but it's not. Yeah, I think that's a key misunderstanding that a lot of people have. They, they think, oh, we're supposed to wear a mask to protect ourselves. That kind of sounds right, except that that's, that is not why they're asking everybody to wear a cloth mask, right? I mean, yeah, I see people with exhalation valves all over. So I was looking for a mask for my son, who's three. And you can't find an N95 without an exhalation valve for like toddlers. I did find one uh, made by this company called Air Plus. It's, a, it's an Asian company, so you can't buy it unless you're like in Asia, like Taiwan, Singapore, and somewhere else. And, um, but it makes an exhalation valve that like points down. So like when you blow out, it doesn't like blow straight out. It like points down. It's an interesting idea. So did, so do they say like what, you know, the, like the benefits are to using a mask yeah. like this or like a similar mask? Yeah. So basically they were saying it would, there's no exhalation valve. So you're not, you know, risking getting anyone else sick. Um, they're sturdier and they're reusable. They're easy to disinfect, uh, especially for healthcare professionals, you know, going um, in and out of the healthcare environment every day. 
uh, and depending on the manufacturer, the, the filter media is supposed to last uh, weeks to months. So that's good for them. Uh, they cut costs that way. And yeah, I think that that's it. It reduces costs. There's uh, no risk getting a new sink and it's easy to disinfect. Um, and it basically, it's up to the filter media, I think is up to P100 level. The P100 it's like a HEPA filter. I, I use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you can you buy these now? You can pre-order them through the MSA Safety company. So MSA Safety is a uh, Pittsburgh company. Uh, is that where they are? I didn't look up where they are. I just know that they're a manufacturer. You didn't look that up. I know <laughs> that. I know because I'm in Pittsburgh. So that's right. I, I looked up what they do. <laughs> Yeah, mine, mine safety. Can you, so, I mean, can you order, as far as I know, like I've looked for N95s, you can't, I can't find N95s anywhere. Maybe like you can get I mean, them we, for work. We get them at work, but we get them through, you know, our, like people, like we have like a PPE vendor. So like we were ordering them before COVID. So, you know, we were already like on, like the reoccurring order through uh, through the supply vendor, so we continued it. We continued to get N95s throughout, like all of last year through you know through today. But you know we get a hundred of them, so it's not it's not a lot. Right. Yeah, I remember how we used to go through mass at Tramvirt. Those cartridges are not. The cartridges you put on these masks are not cheap. Yeah, and we would blow through. I know there there's some way in which you know you can like service the masks to kind of put them like decontaminate and I don't know if it's like swapping filters out or putting like a new filter on there, but like you can essentially like refurbish used N95s or at least some of them and put them back into circulation. I'm not sure what that entails, but it, it's like it, auto. I saw I saw a technology. I mean, it's like autoclaving them. I mean, you if they're not too heavily soiled, you just disinfect them. Not with like a chemical disinfectant, like probably with heat and pressure or mic microwaves. I don't know. Cook, melt your mask. The same, you, you put your tanning, a tanning bed <laughs> in a miniature tanning bed, <laughs> right? With your phone, and it decontaminates them both at the same time. All right, get a nice orange tint to it as well. All right, yeah. So, right. I mean, that's all the you know, it's all the time we have for today. We just wanted to thank our contributors and you know, those of you who've been listening to the show today. You know, we'll be putting up these episodes weekly and, and you can find them on, you know, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, you know, and we invite everybody to go visit our website. It's bakita.org, B-A-K-I-D-A.org, where we'll be putting up links to each of the articles that we discussed today and encourage you to email us if, you know, if there's anything that you'd like to see in one of our future episodes or something that you want us to touch upon, um, you know, we just want to take a moment. Thanks everybody again for joining us. We hope to see you again on the next episode. Bye-bye. Okay.